This is the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings with two Bs on Snapchat, and brought to you by the godfather of Sass himself, Mr. Jason Lemkin, at JasonLK on Twitter. And if you'd like to hang out with the godfather of Sass and me in person, you can. We would love to see you at Sasta Annual 2018. And if you use the promo code DRINKSWITHHARRY, not only do you get 10% off the ticket price, but also free mojitos, courtesy of the kind bank of Mr. Jason Lemkin. That's Drinks With Harry when you purchase your tickets. But to the show today, and I'm thrilled to welcome a software industry veteran with over 20 years in building and leading high-growth technology companies from early stage through IPO. Therefore, I'm thrilled to welcome Greg Schott to the hot seat today. Now, Greg is the chairman and CEO at MuleSoft, provider of the leading platform for building application networks, and they've raised over $250 million in funding from some of the best investors in the world, including NEA and Lightspeed, and then some of the largest companies of the day in Cisco, Salesforce, and SAP. Greg joined MuleSoft in 2009, when the company had only 20 employees. Over the last eight years, Greg has scaled the team to over a thousand employees today in 18 countries, a truly incredible journey. But before we move into today's episode, if you're a founder or operator, your most important job is people operations, hiring execs, developing managers and retaining top talent. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one performance management solution for growing companies. With Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 performance review cycles as often as you want. And you also get a continuous feedback system with OKR goal tracking, real-time feedback and one-on-one meetings to make sure employees get feedback between reviews. So find out why the likes of Coinbase, PlanGrid, Birchbox and WePay trust Lattice as their performance management solution by heading over to Lattice.com to start investing in your people. That's Lattice.com, the number one performance management solution for growing companies. And we mentioned WePay there. And it's thanks to my friends at WePay that I can introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, Buildertrend, the number one construction management platform for builders and contractors. It's designed to handle pre-sales, project management, customer management and financial matters like budgets and payments. With more than 450,000 construction professionals and more than $67 billion worth of projects completed in Buildertrend, it really is, as I said, a very cool player in SaaS. And you can learn more at Buildertrend.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments like Buildertrend did, visit WePay.com forward slash SASTA. WePay's got this incredible smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. And as I said, you can get that at WePay.com forward slash SASTA. However, it's now time to rest my dulcet British tones, and I'm thrilled to welcome Greg Short, CEO at MuleSoft. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Greg, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today, having heard so many great things from Lightspeed and SAP. So thank you so much for joining me today, Greg. Thank you so much for having me here. I appreciate it. Not at all, but I'd love to kick off today with a little about you and how you came to be CEO at one of the most exciting SaaS companies of the day with MuleSoft. Yeah, I mean, I had been in Silicon Valley for almost 20 years and had been at three different startup companies before MuleSoft. And they were all software-based companies. I'd had several different roles, marketing, business development, operations, leading some small engineering teams. I had a bunch of different roles. And I'd always thought that it would be really fun to, to build a company. And if I ever had the opportunity to do that, I would. And I knew some people that were on the uh, management team at MuleSoft and knew a bit of, of some of the venture capitalists that were involved and when they had a need for a CEO I got a phone call and uh, and that's what got it going and that was the start of the exciting journey but I do want to break the interview today into two halves I want to start with a discussion on all things hiring and team building and then a quick fire round and then scaling sales orgs does that sound good to you sure so starting on hiring you joined MuleSoft in 2009 when the company had just 20 employees today the firm has over 1,018 offices so talk to me what have been some of the biggest challenges 
challenges you experienced as you scaled this incredible team? I mean, the biggest challenge you face, I think almost every company faces when they're scaling is how to keep the culture intact. If you're growing really fast, for us, we were we were doubling the company almost every year. And when you're doing that from a hiring standpoint, you, you get a situation where you look around and half the people are brand new and haven't even been there a year. And so how do you make sure that you keep that culture intact the whole way through? And what I talk about very often with the team here is it really all starts with the hiring process. It starts with making sure that people that you're bringing in line up with the values of the organization, the type of people that you're trying to build. Really, we, we call, uh, at MuleSoft, we call them muleys. And so it's, you know, do they have muley DNA? <laughs> and and if and if somebody has that DNA, then, then it can be a good fit. And if not, it's not. And you've just got to make sure that you're just continuing to build the culture with the types of people that are, you know, and continue to get better and better over time. Like we talk a lot about hiring people that are better than you, hiring people that are smarter than you, not being a Afraid of, of bringing people in who are really going to challenge the thinking and challenge the status quo. I'm very interested in terms of, we mentioned obviously the challenge there of maintaining that culture. Where have you seen the, the inflection points and the breaking points of scaling MuleSoft? Maybe it's where culture that then breaks, or maybe it's kind of quality assurance then uh, lowering. Where have you seen those inflection points with the scaling? Yeah, I mean, they, they happen, we talk about the cracks widening, cracks opening up, crevices opening up in an organization, and it, and it happens all the way, all along the way. So you'll hear people say, well, there's a big shift at the 10 million revenue mark and at the 25 million revenue mark and the 100 million revenue mark. And frankly, I don't think using those benchmarks really makes a lot of sense. I think you, you see it all along the way. Where you'll see it happen is when you realize that you're you're holding on to a set of processes that maybe worked at one scale, you know, how you're running an engineering team and how you're thinking about communicating between the product organ, product management organization and the engineering organization. And at one scale that really works where they're all just sitting in a room together and everybody knows what you know one one hand knows what the other hand is doing and then you hit a certain point and all of a sudden you realize wow you know that those processes that we knew and loved and worked so well for years say one to four all of a sudden at year five you realize they start to fall on their face because they just don't work at the next level of scale where you've got maybe two layers of management or you've got people in different locations and so we just found all along the way there are just places where you kind of run out of runway on your path process. And you have to be very comfortable saying, hey, whatever processes we put in place, they made sense at the time, but now they may make no sense at all. And so you get somebody who comes in and we, we try to tell anybody who's new to the company, when you see something that feels that it's that it doesn't make sense, it probably doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go fix let's go fix it. We found that all along the way. We found it we found it in engineering. We had a we had it in marketing at one point in time. We've had just different places all along the way as you hit a certain scale point you realize that what you did before doesn't work anymore. Can I ask a, a potentially uh, conflicting question there? I often have heard before that it's not about when it breaks, but it's foreseeing it breaking. How do you think about kind of planning for six months pre-breakage, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, you should see things stretch before they break, right? And so <laughs> usually you don't get to a place, hopefully, if you get to a place where something truly breaks, by almost by definition, where things really go haywire, then you really haven't kept your eye on things. We do, for example, we do one thing. We do an employee engagement survey, which, frankly, we've been doing it for four years now. I wish we had started earlier. And we ask about 15 questions. It's something somebody can do in half an hour. We do it once a year. And you really start understanding 
finding where the problems are in the organization, where people are getting frustrated, where they can make things better, whether it's frustrated across organizational boundaries or within their own teams. And this year, our engagement survey, we got 5,500 responses back, 5,500 verbatim answers to the questions where people filled in oftentimes sentences, sometimes full paragraphs, sometimes even pages of information about in response to a question that they were asked. And when you get all that information, you can start seeing, okay, there's a problem coming up here. So that's the stretching. And as long as you're keeping an eye on it, you're making sure that, well, it's, you're never satisfied. You don't, you don't, you know, you're not doing the right thing as a leadership team, as a manager, if you're waiting for something to break before you make a change. So it's just staying out ahead of it and, and making sure that you're keeping your finger on the pulse of what's going on in the organization, understanding when things are starting to stress and strain a little bit, and then correcting them proactively. Going back to the very early days of MuleSoft, when you joined with 20 people, I'm really intrigued. You said about the many differing elements there from engineering to sales to marketing. How do you think about prioritization in early stage startups? And how did you look to do that in terms of sales, CS, marketing, engineering? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the the biggest problem that I see over and over uh, happening is companies that get too focused too early on sales. By that, I mean, you'll see it just happen with so many CEOs where they think they have something we call product market fit in Silicon Valley. And they think they've got product market fit because they've got a couple customers that are paying the money and they think, okay, there it is. There's the signal. We know we have a product that the world wants to go buy. And then what they do is they staff their sales organization up aggressively. And then they find out sometimes much later than you'd want to, they find that they spend a year or so staffing up a big sales organization. And then two years down the line, they realize, you know what, we actually didn't have the product market fit that we thought we did. We built, we either built the wrong sales organization or we, or we spent all of our focus on selling instead of focusing on building a great product. And so that, that to me is the one that I see happening over and over again, where they really haven't locked in and haven't figured out exactly what the market needs and wants. And they get into the scale out part of the business way too soon. The other problem that I'll see happening often is they'll bring in people from a sales leadership standpoint that are good at turning the crank when something is up and running and you need to really scale it versus an earlier stage mentality kind of sales leadership that is actually helping the engineering and the marketing teams figure out the the sales motions, the marketing motions, the actual products that are getting built. You need leadership on the sales side that's actually helping you figure that out. And that's a very different type of person. Wow. Two great questions to come from that. So the first is when's the right time to really crank it up and hire that VP of sales? It's hard to say. I think if you hire the right kind of VP of sales, hiring them very early when you have a product that's ready to sell in the marketplace is fine. So if you're hiring somebody who's a startup oriented, thinking about it can really help on the executive team, can really help figure out the market with you, then I think it's almost not never too early to hire that person as long as you have a have a product that's ready to get in, you know, sell in the marketplace. But then sometimes if you're hiring a person who's much more of a scale out salesperson, that you have to wait to make that hire until you're at that point. Can I ask, do you think individuals are able to make the transition cross stage from jack of all trades to scale up specialist? Often there's a lot of thought saying no, they're not. And they're kind of series A guys or girls. What's your take on that and people's uh, flexibility in moving between stages? Yeah, I think it depends. I think we can look at a lot of examples in tech are Bill Gates, Michael Dell, Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs. And there's plenty of examples of people who started in dorm rooms and garages and ended up running multinational, multi-billion dollar companies. So from a CEO standpoint, 
standpoint, there's certainly many, many examples of people who have taken it all the way through. And I think that holds true. And that's probably harder to make those transitions, I think, for a CEO to make through those transitions as opposed to somebody in a functional role. So I don't agree at all that you would think that by definition, somebody's going to stress and strain with making those transitions. That said, there are many, many people that cannot make those transitions. They are they're either wired a certain way and can operate in a certain way that works well at a certain stage. And so you have people that are a, a little bit just more narrow about the place that they work really well. This person works really well from a thousand people to 3000 people, or they work really well from 10 people to a hundred people. And then their behavior, you know, their MO, how they operate doesn't work at the next stage. And they, they're that kind of a person. They're a startup person or they're a big company person. They're the kind of that mentality. And then there are other people that just, as they go through stages, they can morph their behavior and morph the way they operate to suit whatever those different stages are. And I think, you know, there's just different people. There's just different capabilities, but I would never put anybody in the bucket of saying they can't make it through. It's just very idiosyncratic. Can I ask, in terms of straining and stretching, what to you in terms of VP, when's a stretch, a stretch too far? Are there signs? Yeah, you'll see that with their team, typically. Teams usually give their managers a lot of room to make mistakes. Uh, If they trust them, if they think they're smart, if they think they're generally working on the right things, and they know they're a little raw and they're coming up to speed, they're going to give that person a lot of wiggle room to figure it out. But when you start seeing a team really start to raise lots of issues, now sometimes we've had it here where you'll have teams raising issues and sometimes you just work through them and you get to a place where you go, okay, this person was just ramping and they finally got through them. But usually when you start seeing a team push back pretty hard about someone's leadership, you realize you may have gotten out ahead of it a little bit and then you have to sort it. No, absolutely. You mentioned earlier the the hiring process and I, I do want to discuss that. And in terms of where you think most companies go most wrong when they make bad hires, we spoke about scaling very quickly as you did with MuleSoft. Where do you think most companies go wrong making bad hires? So I believe that where people go wrong making hires really starts at the very beginning. It starts in the interview process. Nobody has a college degree in how to interview. Nobody takes courses in college in how to interview. There's very little outside that companies do in how to interview and how to hire people. And So hiring, by and large, is this thing that people kind of do on the side. And arguably, who you hire and how you hire, the process that you use is going to determine the fit of that person with your organization. And so what I think is most important is that they think about, I mean, you'll have a manager, they'll say, I don't want to take that candidate out to dinner. I don't have time to do that. And you think, and you say to yourself, so let me get this right. You've met this person for one hour for a one hour interview. And this person is potentially going to determine a lot about how easy, you know, how happy you're going to be coming into work over the next two years working with this person. Like, why wouldn't you want to spend more time with this individual before you bring them on? And so we're just, we take this process incredibly seriously. We think it should be the most rigorous process in the company. And it's about not talking during the interview and letting the candidates do all the talking during the interview. It's about digging in for track record of accomplishments. It's about digging hard on people's references. It's about doing exercises where you actually get to see the person doing the job at hand. We push very hard for actually having them try and get them as close to doing the actual job as we possibly can, getting them up on the whiteboard, giving them an actual exercise, seeing how they're going to actually do the job, and then making sure that everybody's being really honest, the candidate as well as the company, about the fit 
of the organizations. I mean, every company is not for everybody. And so the pace of the organization, the intensity of the organization, travel requirements, commute requirements, all those things, you got to be honest with yourself about those. And the candidates got to be honest with themselves too, and make sure we, we call it square peg, square hole. We want to make sure that those things are fitting too. And I feel like if you invest very heavily upfront in the actual hiring and interviewing and assessment process, it just pays off a hundredfold on the back end. So square peg, square hole, sometimes square peg, round hole happens. How long do you think is long enough to determine whether a bad hire is indeed a, a bad hire? Well, one thing you'll always hear people talk about is you rarely make a decision too fast. And that's an interesting one because you never can really test whether that's true or not. Because if people decide it's not a good fit and you part ways with somebody, you don't really get a chance to run the experiment to find out if actually it would have been a good fit. <laughs> so I'm not sure how people can say that with a lot of certainty. But I do think in general, managers, we're all human beings and we all want to make it work. Everybody is really cheering for the person. You always want it to be successful. And, and I think what generally happens is people hold on to it too long. I think usually within the first 90 days, you have a pretty good sense whether the capabilities are there, whether the interpersonal abilities are there, whether the fit with the company's culture is there. You know pretty soon whether you have something that's going to be, certainly you know at edges of the spectrum. You know if it's a really fantastic fit or you know if it's a bad fit. And then the problems come up when you're kind of in the middle parts. And there you may need a little bit longer to really sort it out. Mm -hmm. But with these slightly negative situations in mind with regards to hiring, if you could go back to 2009, I've got my magic genie ball when you first joined MuleSoft. What would you change about the way you approached hiring, having had that hindsight? Yeah, that's a great one. There's all kinds of things that would change. (laughs) The biggest thing that we would have done at the very beginning would have been getting very serious about the exercises. Humans are terrible at doing interviews. Everybody tends to suck at it. We tend to fall in love during interviews, and and it really comes down to often who sounds the best and talks the best and tells the best story. And that's not the job, right? The job at hand, they're not coming to come interview as their job. They're coming to go develop code or market your products or you know, sell your products. And selling maybe is probably the sales job is probably the thing that's closest to interviewing in terms of positioning things. But the rest of the jobs in the company are really pretty much completely unrelated to how well somebody talks in an interview. And so to me, I would have been much more diligent at the very beginning about having exceptional exercises that people go through and you actually just get to see them in action. I mean, I know one company, and I I don't think they're still doing this, but at one point they were having people take four days off of their current job, which is asking a lot, and actually come develop code with them. The engineers were were actually coming for four days and working on-site writing code. It was in a location where you could request that, and I don't think that that doesn't work for most parts of the world, and I I think is, is really hard to ask people to do that. But at one end of the spectrum, you know, it's a heck of a way to figure out how that fit's going to work when you get to actually see the person do the job. Yeah, and test their desire to move just with the commitment that's up front. That's that's an interesting one too, though, because that one I'm actually, I have real mixed feelings about because I think some of the strongest candidates, they have lots of opportunities and they're not, may not be willing to put in all that effort. And so it's interesting, you get a bit of a sample bias when the only people that you're going to hire are the ones that are willing to take four days off 
off. And it's one thing if it's a very mission-based organization where people say, I just want to be part of it because I have such a passion for the mission of the company. That can work. But a lot of top candidates have lots of different options and just aren't going to be willing to give the company that much time when they're still evaluating you. I mean, a candidate should be evaluating the company every bit as much as the company is evaluating them. So talk to me. I'm a very early stage SaaS founder, 100K MR maybe. So talk to me. What would be those big hiring tips and advice you'd give me? The biggest thing I said a little bit earlier, the most important part is that every single person you hire is pulling up the average of the organization. You're trying to make every hire better than the one you made before. The other thing I would tell people is, and this is an area where we've made mistakes in the past too, is you need to hire out ahead of the job. So a lot of times people will hire for the job that's at hand and you need to hire for the job that's going to be at hand in 12 months, 24 months. If you're hiring somebody who's going to hit the C Feeling in 12 months for whatever reason that they just can't extend to that next level, you're kind of doing them and yourself a disservice. So it's, it's hiring ahead of the curve. And that's not saying you hire somebody who's a big company person who only works at 10,000 person organizations. You don't want to, you don't necessarily want to go that far ahead, but you want to have somebody that can scale to their, to your earlier questions. You want to have somebody who can get to that next level of scale and push through that. You're not in the situation where all of a sudden they're tapped out. No, absolutely. It makes sense. I do want to dive into my favorite element though, of any interview being the quick fire round. So it's Greg's 60 second Saster. Are you ready? I'm ready. How have things changed since IPO? You know, they really haven't. It's a very similar feel. We were running this company as if we were a public company while we were private. So it just hasn't felt that much different. I mean, the pressure is up and the spotlight is up on the company, but the way we're running it internally has not changed. Can anyone learn to be a great CEO or is it more an innate skill? I don't know, but I think if people are smart and care deeply about what they're trying to build and care about the people around them and the company, I think anybody can do the job. It's a lot about just how much of your heart and soul you're willing to put into it. When is the right time to expand product and enter new segments? When you either have a situation where you know that what you're doing is not working and you have to pivot, or you have a current situation where it is on, I wouldn't call it autopilot, but it is moving so well and it's turned into something that's more routine and the organization can handle what we call another activity field. Biggest challenge with MuleSoft today? Biggest challenge is just keeping the culture intact as we keep scaling the company so fast. When is the right time to hire a VP of marketing? Jason Lemkins told me 20K MRR, you can hire the VP of marketing. What are your thoughts? I'd hire the VP of marketing almost at the very beginning of the company unless you think you have a long development cycle that's going to take years. But if you're planning on launching a product within 12 months, I would hire the person immediately. Which SaaS CEO and company do you most admire and and why? One of the CEOs that I'm most impressed by is Frank Slootman, who just stepped down as a CEO at ServiceNow. And the reason I think he's what he's done is so incredible is he's been the CEO of two different companies, Data Domain and ServiceNow. Both of those companies were in spaces that were challenging, and he built juggernauts in both of those places. And his his unrelenting passion for building great products, selling great products in the marketplace, and building success for his team 
just really focused on making his team successful and really helping them in life, I think is just awe-inspiring. I think the guy's incredible. That's the future guess for sure. I'll be asking you for an intro after the show. Um, but I do <laughs> want to finish the episode today on the theme of scaling sales organizations. You've done so excellently with MuleSoft with this regard. So starting on the meta, how do you think about scaling sales teams? <laughs> Broad question. There's no easy answers on this one. I, I think the, the part that's important, I said it earlier, is to just make sure you get that right leader in place who has the right mentality for the stage that you're in as a company. I think that's really the most important part of it. And somebody who's done enough, been there, done that is process oriented enough that is going to build out the right infrastructure, the right processes, but is also scrappy and driven and going after business. And that's the balance because sometimes sales leadership will be very focused on just getting deals done. And that's just a small part of the whole function. It is a very much of a process-oriented job, and you have to have somebody who can do both. Talk to me. You said about kind of getting those deals done. How do you think then about sales rep productivity and, and, and payback period for sales reps? Yeah, I mean, for us, it's something that we've, over the years, have been dialing in. You have to have an efficient sales and marketing model or you don't have a business. Companies that ignore their CAC ratios and their magic numbers and uh, believe that somehow in the end that they're going to be able to get sales and marketing efficiency in line with where it needs to be to drive the kind of margins in the business are kidding themselves. You, you have to have that sales and marketing efficiency dialed in before you can really scale a company out. What's a good CAC to LTV ratio for you? We think about a CAC of one is something where if we're above it, then we should be pouring more into the business. And if we're below it, we're trying to figure out how to drive it up. Mm-hmm. And then I want to finish on a launching a new referral campaign for account executives that you're doing at MuleSoft. Tell me about the program and why you're launching it. We just launched a program where if somebody outside the company refers an account executive to MuleSoft, and they can make $100,000 over four years, $25,000 per year for every year that the account executive makes their quota. And the reason we thought about it, I think it's fairly straightforward and obvious, is if we are able to bring in exceptional account executives who deliver their numbers, $25,000 as a referral each year when they make their number is actually relatively modest. And so if we can get the industry to pay attention to this and we can get a lot of people at the partners of ours and at customers of ours and others to recommend exceptional account executives, we think it's going to pay for itself. And it definitely is a war for talent out there. And we think this is a way to really get everybody's attention. Well, Greg, I'm going to be emailing you 10 AEs right after this interview. And I look forward to retiring for a year. Um, but, uh, but seriously, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Uh, I've watched MuleSoft's journey from afar with huge admiration. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Harry. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. So fantastic to have Greg on the show there. And if you'd like to see all things behind the scenes at Sasta, you can on Snapchat at hdebbings with two Bs. And likewise, remember what I said at the beginning, if you'd like to join us at Sasta Annual 2018 for Drinks with Harry, all you need to do is head over to sasta.com and buy your 2018 Sasta Annual tickets, type in the promo code Drinks with Harry, and not only do you get 10% off, but also free mojitos courtesy of the kind bank of Mr. Jason Lemkin. But before we leave you today, if you are a founder or operator, your most important job is people operation. 
operations, hiring execs, developing managers, and retaining that top talent. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one performance management solution for growing companies. With Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 performance review cycles as often as you want, and you also get a continuous feedback system with OKR goal tracking, real-time feedback, and one-on-one meetings to make sure employees get feedback between reviews. So find out why the likes of Coinbase, PlanGrid, Birchbox, and WePay trust Lattice as their performance management solution by heading over to Lattice.com to start investing in your people. That's Lattice.com, the number one performance management solution for growing companies. And we mentioned WePay there, and it's thanks to my friends at WePay that I can introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, Buildertrend, the number one construction management platform for builders and contractors. It's designed to handle pre-sales, project management, customer management, and financial matters like budgets and payments. With more than 450,000 construction professionals and more than $67 billion worth of projects completed in Buildertrend, it really is, as I said, a very cool player in SaaS. And you can learn more at Buildertrend.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, like Buildertrend did, visit WePay.com forward slash SASTA. WePay's got this incredible cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. So that really is a must. And that's at WePay.com forward slash SASTA. As always, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you next week's episode.